So good to see you all one week post-Easter. Uh, hey, if we have never met, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here uh, at Bethany West Seattle. I uh, just want to welcome those here uh, that are in person. Uh, welcome those that are online uh, and those that will be watching uh, throughout the week. And so uh, it is the week after Easter, and we continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus uh, and my hope and desire and prayer for all of us is that as we think about Jesus' resurrection, we also think about the question, what does that mean for me? Uh, as one author would say, uh, how now shall we live? So how now shall we live uh, knowing and believing that Jesus had lived, had died, and resurrected uh, for us to have eternal life starting today? Uh, not just a place where we go to after we die, though, there's, uh, though I do believe that, but what does it look like now? And the resurrection of Jesus says something about how we are to live today. And so uh, we will continue in Mark, and, and today is the last ser uh, sermon on the book of Mark. Uh, and it's kind of a unique chapter where uh, for those of you that uh, have followed along in our Mark reading plan, no shame if you haven't, uh, but if you are familiar with the last part of Mark, especially verse uh, 9 through 20, so 16, 9 through 20, depending on which variation of translation you have, uh, I prefer the NRSV, there's the NIV, there's the CEB, whatever it is, uh, there, there's oftentimes a little asterisk of those verses. So for example, a mine will say right before verse nine, uh, the longer extending, uh, the longer ending of Mark, or the NIV might have uh, the the later edition uh, of the way that Mark ended. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I just want to name the elephant in the room uh, as we finish the book of Mark next week. We go into a new uh, sermon series called Pursuing Wholeness, uh, and it's. Uh, uh, a series that I'm super excited about as we talk about different elements of our lives where uh, we can pursue a little bit more wholeness. And so with that said, uh, oh, I want to mention that next week uh, we will be having uh, another Connect Lunch. And it's, it's a gift from us to you. It's catered uh, from a wonderful restaurant that we might all be familiar with called Chipotle. Uh, and so we'd love to see you there. The only thing we ask for is that you sign up so we know, A, uh, how much food to get, but also, B, if you have any dietary restrictions, uh, we want to uh, accommodate that as well. So, again, on your way out, you can sign up uh, with a QR code, or at the Connect table, you can just write down your name on a Connect card and just write Connect Lunch or something, and we'll know to add you there. So, uh, okay, our uh, verses today are, again, Mark chapter 16, uh, but we'll read starting from uh, verse 14 and on. I'll, sorry, I also want to say this. Uh, there's so much thing, so many things to talk about before we get started. Uh, when, when Hannah, our Connections Coordinator, uh, extends the invitation to, towards generosity and, and towards giving, one of my hopes as, as a pastor here is to make sure that uh, you're aware of all the things that are happening in the life of our church. And so 
that way that you're not giving so blindly. Obviously, uh, part of the generosity and the giving goes towards what's happening in the life of our church, uh, the logistics, the administration of our church, but also we want to make sure that we're also as a church collectively being generous. Uh, and so as we talked about, there's moments where we give uh, to places in crisis, like, you know, we gave, a, I believe, a $10,000 check towards uh, World Relief as they help uh, refugees from Ukraine, really all over the country. We, we, we give regularly, month on a monthly basis, to uh, Real Rent Duwamish, uh, acknowledging that the land that we uh, live in and meet in is a land that was originally uh, founded by the ind indigenous. And so to honor that, we, we give and uh, we want to partner with the Longhouse. And there's other ways that we do that. Just I just want you to know that uh, there's ways that as a community we serve our local neighborhood, uh, including Highland Park Elementary. Obviously, uh, we have a long-lasting relationship with them. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Okay, now... Mark chapter 16, verse 14 uh, through 18. And the word of the Lord says this. Later, he appeared to the 11. Uh, later, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were sitting at the table. And he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes is baptized and will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who do believe. Uh, by using my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and if they drink any deadly things, in other words, the venom from being bit from the snakes, uh, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. Let's pray. God, thank you. That as we celebrate post-Easter, as many people are out and about, some even on vacation, and, and some just resting, God, would you just be with them as well? And, and God, as uh, we gather here today, God, may we just come seek you, worship you, and to meet with you in the ways that we need to meet with you with. God, you know the baggage that we bring, and, and that's not a bad thing. We, we all bring in our own stuff, and thank you for meeting us. Uh, in that, in loving us despite that, uh, and making us worthy no matter what. And we thank you for, again, your life, death, and resurrection that makes all this possible. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, so some of you know that right after Easter, uh, last, last Sunday, and for those of you that participated in our Holy Week event, thank you for being a part of it. And for those of you that we're just in the peripheral. Well, thank you for being a part of it in that way as well. But we had a very long week, all the way from Good Friday, uh, well, really Palm Sunday to Friday to Sunday, again, Easter Sunday. Uh, and uh, as a way to kind of breathe and to kind of step back, uh, a couple friends and I uh, went on a little food vacation, which we often do, uh, and we went to New York City. And so uh, right after the Easter service, I went home, I packed, and I left for New York uh, with some friends, and uh, I got back around 11 o'clock last night, and so we ate our way through uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn, and, and, and it was amazing, 
And on the way back uh, from New York, uh, my friends decided that they were going to sit and pay extra uh, to sit towards the front, the premium section of the plane. Uh, I, uh, some people might call me cheap. I like to say wise uh, and, and a good steward. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to pass. I'm not going to pay that much to sit a few rows ahead, but I'm going to sit near the restroom where I normally sit. And so, uh, but my friend had offered. He said, okay, I have the status gold or elite or whatever it is. And he said, I'll go up to the ticket counter and I'll ask if my friend can sit next to me because he knew there was an open seat in that premium section. And so I was like, okay. And so he goes, he asks, and I don't know what happened, but just like that, here I am sitting uh, in the premium class where there's more room and, you know, it's more spacious and you get a little bit more uh, attention. I don't know what it is, but I I sat there and it was amazing the difference between coach where I normally sit to this place where I normally, where, where I got upgraded for free. And, And the way that the seating was, was that I was sitting at the window there was actually an empty seat in the middle, and then there was a, a stranger, somebody else, uh, on the aisle seat. My friend was just sitting right next to him. Uh, and you know when you go and you sit down, and I don't know what it is, but I tend, and maybe you can resonate with this, we, we play this really passive-aggressive game with the person next to you, right? Like a little, little push with the elbow, claiming your territory, of the, of the arm, them kind of pushing back, and you're like, okay, what do I, if I give up now, I, I'll lose the armrest for the rest of the flight, so you gotta, you gotta push back a little bit to kind of stake your territory. Now, it was kind of like that, except for the middle seat was completely open, uh, but the person next to me started claiming that seat in addition to his seat, and so he puts his bag there, and he puts his, he was wearing a hat, he puts his, and I'm thinking, Okay, I, I'm getting petty. Okay, I'm just going to confess that to you. Because I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's not his seat. And he can't just claim the whole seat. And, and mind you, it was a little cold on the plane. But I had nothing to put there. But I took off my sweatshirt. <laughs> All right? And I was still, but it was, it was worth it. Because I need to, to, to stake at least half of that seat. So I put it down. You know, I put like a book over uh, and, and we were just kind of, and he was kind of pushing his stuff a little bit closer. Like, we were playing that game. And then he went to the bathroom. And uh, like any good Christian person would do, I pushed myself over a little bit more to try to claim majority of the seat. And I remember the text messaging. It was working. I texted Maria. I was like, this, this audacity that this guy has to try to, try to stake this seat that wasn't his. And then I was kind of processing what, what just happened, not just in that few minutes, but the entirety of how I even ended up there. I was supposed to sit and coach, but the, the people at the counter was nice enough to, to move me up for free, and so I wasn't even supposed to be there. He probably paid for that seat. As a matter of fact, he probably belonged there more than I did, and yet here I was with my petty slash competitive slash uh, I don't know, side, where I needed to just stake my claims to that, to that middle seat. And I was thinking to myself, what, what, what am I doing? And I remember, I remember this thought 
where I was like, I'm, I'm, I hope he doesn't ask what I do because then I have to say oh, I'm a pastor and then it's going to be super awkward. But, but even more than that, uh, not only am I a pastor, but I, we just celebrated Brandon Easter. I'm a follower of Jesus. There's, uh, there's ways that we should be living compassionately, graciously, sacrificially. And, and I thought to myself, what am I doing and it's kind of a silly example, but I've, I've thought about this a lot. Maybe you have too. Have you ever taken an inventory of your life, the way you live, the way you treat others, the way you are in relationship with others, compared to what you believe, your convictions, your faith, and perhaps if, you're, if you identify as being a father of Jesus, your faith in Jesus, and have you ever come to grips that maybe those sides of what you claim to believe and how you actually behave, sometimes they just don't match up? And at that moment, I don't know if it's a sense of guilt or shame or whatever it was, I thought to myself, what am I doing? What I believe and how I want to live just didn't add up. In that moment, have you ever thought that what you are doing, especially as it relates to your faith, just wasn't enough? Have you ever felt like, again, maybe you don't identify as being a follower of Jesus. Have you ever felt like how you live and how you show up in life just wasn't enough? That you aren't enough, that I am not enough. It gets personal. And I don't know about you, but I have those moments quite often, again, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a human, where the way that I show up, the way that I even think, and hey, I'll be the first one to confess, and maybe you would confess along with me, if there was like a, a ticker of uh, the, all the things that I was thinking on the inside, what, what if we all had that? What if we all had like a, a little screen on top of our heads and it and it typed out everything that you were thinking wouldn't you just be totally ashamed or or feeling guilty i know that i would especially the things that i think about the the anger the frustration the things that annoy me that those things that aren't that i'm not so proud of i, I would imagine many of us are in the same boat where we would be like wow it doesn't always match up to the things that i claim to believe and have faith in especially us as followers of Jesus, and yet then we come to this conclusion, wow, I'm just not doing enough, slash I am not enough. And those are the things that we kind of bear our weight on, our, our attention on, uh, because there's a strange phenomenon where we always tend to focus on the negative aspects of our lives and our thoughts and our actions. There's even a term for this that uh, the world of, which I try to incorporate a lot, the world of psychology has, uh, and they call it the negative bias. And one neuroscientist, neuropsychologist actually, describes the, the negative bias like this. He says, this is, the negative bias, is our tendency not only to register negative stimuli more readily, but also to dwell on these events. This negativity bias means that we feel uh, the sting of a rebuke more powerfully than we feel the joy of praise. <clears throat> I mean, take a look at headlines when we 
are scrolling through our social media or looking at websites or, or maybe you are reading the physical paper. Even the headlines are often just really fearful and, and negative and often shocking. And, you know, we call this clickbait because we know, uh, the writers know, those that write these articles know how to click into our emotions that will bait us in into wanting to know more, into reading more. It's just the way that we were wired. And many believe that humans, we were wired uh, with this negative bias because it's a way to protect ourselves. Fear and being more connected to the negative and the positive does a better job of us protecting ourselves from danger. You know, and so oftentimes the, the, the negative bias, it shows up in our lives in different ways, even relationally. Uh, and, and I don't know, I think this is more of a conversation that I need to have, <clears throat> excuse me, with my therapist, uh, but I think it has to do with my family systems and my culture and the way that I grew up, and, but I grew up in a very critical family, a very OCD slash perfectionistic type of family uh, where everyone always demanded excellence, and, and I would say stereotypically that is uh, the common theme, especially around Asian cultures and, and Asian families. Uh, and unfortunately for my wife, Maria, she <clears throat> experiences that probably more than anyone around me. Uh, and I remember, and I don't even know what it was, but there was something I was critical about. Like, hey, why did you do it this way? Or why did you do it that way? But the, but the response that I'll never forget is uh, when she calls me out on my, uh, the way that I'm critical and she says, why are you so quick to call out when I uh, get it wrong, and yet you never address or acknowledge the ways I've gotten it right? And so this negative bias, it doesn't just impact us, the way that we dwell on the negative aspects. Maybe it's the negative things in our lives. Maybe it's even trauma, which I don't want to diminish. I think those are things that we need to uh, wrestle with and navigate and, and even seek professional help to help navigate that. But why is it in our lives that we always focus on the negative things that have happened to us or the things that we have done? Uh, and why is it that we focus on the negative things that other people have done and we forget about the goodness that you are, that we are in our own selves, and we forget the goodness that happens to us from others? It's that negative bias. And, and maybe for you, the negative bias, the, the, the things that we focus on uh, is a bad habit or even addiction. Maybe it's uh, a, a time that you think about where you really hurt somebody. Maybe it was a big job mistake. Maybe it was a financial mistake. Maybe it was a life-altering decision that you made that affected negatively the people around you and even yourself. Isn't it strange that when we look back at all of our mistakes and all of the negative elements that we've been through, it's those negative elements of our lives that scream the loudest. It's those events that keep us up at night. It seems like shame has the power to nullify any goodness we have done or goodness have done to us. And maybe some of us in this room, like myself, we dwell just like the negative bias, just like that, what that psychologist says. It means that we focus on the negative more than we ever do on the positive. And maybe if you're like me, you wrestle with the things that you have done 
uh, like the Apostle Paul has. I, for some reason, Romans 7.14 always resonates with me. And, and Paul says this. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And he says this. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, uh, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. In other words, have you ever wrestled with yourself, especially when it comes to this negative and you just kind of off and you're like, why in the world do I do things that I don't want to do, but the things I do, it's so hard for me to do. I mean, it's kind of a riddle that we live with. And just like Paul, it's almost like we're internally just wrestling with us. Why do I keep doing this? The very things that I don't want to do, I do. But the things I know that's healthy for me, that's good for me, I put that on the back burner because I don't want to do it. Why am I like this? And I wonder if many of us, we ask that question. And there's a question that looms as we celebrate post-Easter Again, and the question is, how now shall we live? In other words, Easter happened, so what? What happens next? And I believe the ending of Mark gives us the answer to that. That though we are surrounded by the negative bias, though we are surrounded, even surrounding ourselves with the negative things that we have done, the mistakes that we have made, the question is, what is it about the resurrection that transforms us from those moments? What does it look like then to live as resurrected people? And again, as we dig into, into Mark chapter 16, uh, I, again, I want to I address the elephant in the room when it comes uh, to this passage. Again, uh, my Bible, again, says right before the verses I read, it says, the longer ending of Mark. Now, the majority of New Testament scholars believe that verses 9 through 20, so those are the very last verses of the book, uh, were added to Mark's gospel, uh, most likely in the second century. And the original was written in the first century, most likely around 60 to 70 A.D. Now, what you have to know about the first century, and even the second century, and several centuries before that, is that they didn't have fancy printers or copy machines like we do today. Uh, the way that Bibles in, in, in manuscripts, I would say, they didn't really have full books, but these manuscripts, the way that they were passed down and replicated, again, wasn't by fancy coffee machines uh, or, or uh, printers, but it was the tedious way of somebody, a scribe, literally writing word for word what that manuscript said. And then somebody else would copy that manuscript and write it word for word, and then pass it on. And that's how different manuscripts or Bibles or, or Gospels or letters were passed around, how they were replicated. Each scribe, very carefully, how to write it, handwrite it themselves. It really wasn't until the 15th century, for those of you that uh, are familiar, remember your history class with the Gutenberg Press, it wasn't until then that Bibles and other literature was able to be printed in mass quantities. And so what most likely happened was that the original ending, as you may have read, is very abrupt. It talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, and that's it. It's like game over, story's over. 
while the other gospels kind of give you a little bit of a backdrop of what happens after the resurrection. There was a conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, there was an ascension. There was talking about the Holy Spirit. There was a great commission. But for some reason, there was this hard stop in Mark chapter 16 in, in the earliest of manuscripts. And what most, all the way from the most progressive theologian, all the way to really the conservative con- theologians, what they all most believe is that one of the scribes, probably around the second century, uh, has to kind of fill in the blanks of what happened after the resurrection. And now this isn't to say that the scribe made up, you know, these false stories. Everything that's written in verse 9 through 20 aligns with all the other gospel writers. Everything still checks out. And so maybe in the second century, we don't know for sure, but there was a scribe that said, you know what, I want to kind of put a bow uh, on this gospel by talking about the way that things unfolded after the resurrection. More of a reason to believe in its validity. It's like saying... Uh, the writer. It's like saying, hey, I just wanted to be fully transparent. So here's what happened. There's no secrets. There's no skeletons in the closet. Here's the deal. Uh, I just want to fill you in on what probably happened for the Bible readers, writers. This was a later edition. Again, it does nothing to the authority of Scripture. Uh, Again, many theologians would say that it actually enhances it. Because everything still checks out. Everything still measures up to the other Gospels, which this scribe probably used in order to fill in the last part of Mark. You see, the writer, the scribe of verse 19 through 20, wanted us to get a pattern uh, of, of the other endings. He, he, he most likely it was a he, uh, gathered the information from the other Gospels and said, okay, here are the important things that I want you to know in order to finish off the book of Mark. Uh, So, in verse 9, Jesus appears to the women, especially Mary Magdalene, uh, who in Luke chapter 8 said that she was demon-possessed and Jesus casted out those demons. Okay, that checks out. And it was worth repeating for the scribe. And even when you read it, and I really want to encourage you to read just the end of chapter 16. Starting from verse 9, it gets weird. It's like, it's really clunky. It doesn't go from verse to verse. It's not smooth. As a matter of fact, it kind of retells of what was just written about the women going to Jesus' body, particularly Mary Magdalene. And it kind of like repeats, the the scribe repeats that because it must be important for the scribe, and I believe it's important, to acknowledge that it was the women that went to Jesus' tomb first. Again, like the quote, uh, while the men were afraid and they were hiding, the women went over, put everything at risk, to go to a convicted uh, person that was found guilty and was put to death. To go to that gravesite was a big risk, especially for women. And the women went to honor Jesus' life and death. And then in verse 12, it says, He appeared to two people walking along the countryside. Again, this is a story found in Luke chapter 24. It's the road to Emmaus. Uh, it was a guy named Cleopas and his friend. So everything checks out. Verse 14, as we continue along, Continue along in this extended ending. It says, Jesus rebukes his, his, his stubborn disciples, which again, found in John 20 and other Gospels. 
the other gospel writers call it braid. Some people call it rebuke. The point is there was a strong language that Jesus used to describe his disciples. The disciples refused to believe the stories of Jesus. The, the eyewitness accounts of the women and Jesus rebuked them for their carelessness. And I don't know exactly what Jesus says. I'm sure Jesus said more. But my, my, my guess is that Jesus was frustrated with these men who wouldn't believe the women with the story of Jesus and the resurrection. And, and it wasn't just about that. But it was this pattern of, of disobedience and unfaithfulness uh, and betrayal and unbelief and unfaithfulness. And Jesus, it seemed like he was fed up with it because there's strong language where Jesus is saying, all right, I... I need you to believe I'm frustrated. I'm upset. Whatever it is, these gospel writers use strong words to describe how Jesus felt towards his disciples. Not against the women. The women were obedient. In fact, I believe it was Walter Brueggemann that said if it wasn't for the women of the, of the, of the gospel story, we wouldn't know about the resurrection. Because Jesus gave the testimony to the women to share and they were faithful. It was the men who were disobedient, did not uh, believe, and Jesus called them out on it. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you to catch. The very next verse, after Jesus rebukes uh, the disciples, he says this. He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to the all creation. Whoever believes and is, ba and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now the word go, where he says go to all the, all the creation, we see in Matthew chapter 28, it's a great, uh, the great commission, go into all the nations. The word go doesn't, doesn't only mean uh, just go on this event, like go on this mission trip to create disciples. Yes, that is a part of it. I think there, there's something to be said about Christians going out into the world and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. But a more holistic understanding of this word go is a Greek word, poriuenthes, uh, which is, I don't want to confuse you with the conjunctions, uh, with the conjugations, but it's a participle. It's this ongoing aorist, meaning uh, it doesn't stop. Okay, so it's this word go that is unending and that is continuous, and it's a verb. And so a better translation of the word go to make disciples or go into all of creation, a better translation would be as you are going. It's like in our lives, it's our everyday lives, as you are going, proclaim the gospel of Jesus. As you are going to work, manifest the spirit of Christ in you. Now, does it, this doesn't always necessarily mean uh, bring your Bible and, and, and witness and tell people about Jesus. Yes, there's a time and place for this, but I, I really do believe and, and subscribe to what uh, St. Francis of Assisi would say. Uh, St. Francis would say, preach the gospel at all times. Use words only when necessary. Now, of course, using words is necessary. It's important. But the bigger point of that is as you go into the world, as you're going to work, as you're going to school, as you're going down the street to your neighbors, as you're driving in traffic, hello, somebody, that's me, 
breathe and live the spirit of Christ. May the spirit of Jesus just shine through us so that people would know that there's something unique and different about the way we live. Again, to go isn't just about a destination for a particular mission, although that is a part of it. Again, a whole a more holistic understanding is this continuous verb. As you are living your life, let the resurrected Christ shine through you. May not just your words, but your entire life be a living testimony of the love and grace and justice of Jesus. And here is the result of this. And here's the way that I will end. In Mark chapter 16, verse 17 through 18, it says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and they will drink. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will place their hands on the sick, and they will get well. And this part about the snakes is, is strange, like it seems random, but it's, it's really not. The, the writer, the scribe, is uh, alluding to the story in Acts where Peter was, or sorry, not Peter, but Paul, he got bit by a, a poisonous snake in his hand. And, and people that witnessed this venomous snake biting his hand thought, okay, this guy must have done something wrong. This is karma. This is retribution. Uh, he is going to get what he deserves, and he's going to die. They really believe that Paul was going to die because he got bit by this venomous snake. And you would see that God healed him, and he didn't die, and people were amazed. Of course, then they thought Paul was God. That was a whole different mess. But the point is that he lived to tell the story that this venomous snake did not take his life. Now, Jesus says, uh, or better yet, he uses... The, the experiences of our own lives and our own mistakes and our own negative biases, the things that we lose sleep over, at, uh, the, the things that we lose sleep over, those very things that bring us shame and the very things that bring us guilt, it's like being bit by a snake like Paul did, and everyone thought that that was the end of it. And maybe for you in your life, when you, when you dwell on just the negative aspects of our lives, we say, okay, there's no turning back from this. How can God love me? How can anybody love me? I'm having a hard time loving myself. And what God is saying that God uses even those negative aspects and actually brings life to the things that are dead, just like the cross of Jesus. The irony of, the, uh, of what the scribe is saying is this. The scribe, the writer of Mark is saying this. When someone gets bit by a snake on their hand, that's supposed to kill them because of, a, of the poison, the venom of the snake. Just like Paul. Everyone thought Paul was going to die. But instead of dying from the poison, the writer of Mark says that very hand that was supposed to bring death from the bite of the snake is actually going to heal people. It's actually going to make people well. I hope that we understand the very thing that was supposed to kill us is actually going to bring life to people. 
And, and, and I would say this. I don't believe that God causes hurt and pain. I do believe many, many, not all, but many of this are consequences from our own unhealthy and toxic behavior and actions to others and to ourselves. But God does have the grace and justice and compassion to use the very things that bring us our negative biases, the things that keep us up at night, the things that cause us shame and pain and guilt, uses that story and changes the narrative to now bring healing, not only to your own life, but to, 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 to those around you. The story of your death, God transforms to be the method of life, not only for yourself, but for, uh, but for others. And so what does that mean? What does that require? That requires vulnerability. That requires being honest. That requires be. Uh, through the Holy Spirit, sharing your story to others in order for God to use your story to now bring healing and transformation to others. Now, it's so interesting that in one verse, Jesus is just rebuking, berating his disciples for being so unfaithful. The very next day, he commissions them and says, go into your life. And let my love shine through you. And let it be a healing balm to those that are suffering. In other words, here's the bottom line. Jesus is saying, I still believe in you. Even when you don't believe in yourself. Even when you lose sleep at night because you're overwhelmed with anxiety and depression and shame and guilt even during those times where you only focus on the negative things that you have done or the negative things that have happened to you, Jesus says, I still believe in you. My love will shine through you to be healing balm for others. Jesus believes in you. No matter what mistakes you have made, no matter which decisions you've done, no matter what harm you've caused, yes, repent. Yes, change your ways in how we love others and how we love ourselves and how we love God. But no matter what, Jesus still believes in you and Jesus is not done living in and through you. Jesus wants to work in and through each and every one of us, even in our mess even in our struggles, even in the so-called baggage and failures, in our defeats, in our weakness, in our mistakes, you are not only forgiven, healed, transformed. That is, the, that is the minimum because the reality is God then uses you to help restore others with a loving and gracious God. So now as I want to invite the worship team back up as we enter into a time of communion. Now, as you walked in, you should have received a communion cup that looked something like this. If you have it, if you can just raise your hand, we can bring you a communion cup. We've got a couple up front here. That when Jesus died on the cross, we call this what I would believe and subscribe to as far as atonement is, is Christus Victor, that Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus defeated the negative biases in your life. Jesus says, it is your shame, your guilt, your mistakes, it is finished. No longer does that have to hold you captive. No longer 
is the narrative, you aren't good enough. I'm not good enough. I've made my, no longer is that the narrative. The cross of Jesus says you have been rescued from that. And from now on, you have the capacity to shine God's love and justice and mercy to the world. And not only do we have the capacity to do that, Jesus believes in us to do exactly that. So may we be obedient. May we not let our past define us. May we not let the sum of our worth and who we are be the calculation of the mistakes that we've made. We're bigger than that. God has made us bigger than that. The power of the cross is bigger than that. The power of the cross, the life, the resurrection of Jesus on the cross is bigger than any mistake that we have made in our lives. In fact, to say that our mistake is too big for the cross doesn't say something about the mistake. It actually says what we believe about the cross, that it was not powerful enough. But the resurrection of Jesus and what we celebrate, we're saying, yes, it actually was. And so may we take Jesus' body seriously enough. One of the night that Jesus was betrayed, he says, take this. This is my body that was broken for you. Take this remembrance of me that you may not live in shame and guilt, but you will live in victory because of my body broken for you. May we take this bread and partake together. Then he says to his disciples, take this cup in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was shed for you. May we take this together. Let me pray for our time and we'll continue in worship. Jesus, thank you. That no longer does sin have the last word. No longer do our mistakes define our story. No longer does guilt have a hold on us. Because the resurrection is much more powerful than any of the things that we can think of. Nothing holds us back from you. You are not finished with us. You still believe in us. So may we believe in ourselves. May we believe in others to continue to shine your light, to bring light into where there's darkness, to bring justice where things are broken, to bring compassion, to bring forgiveness, to bring sacrifice, to give up that middle seat. God, may we be so overwhelmed with your love that the overflow of it people can experience and know, then know that you are God. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.